God in heaven, we thank you now for your word. Lord, we are here to hear from you, to allow your word to speak to us, uh, to challenge us, to move us, uh, to make us into the people that you want us to be. And so we receive from you today whatever you have for us. Amen. So we are moving through a series focusing on the theme of the presence of God throughout Scripture. And we are uh, walking through some of the, the main stories that, that speak about God's presence. And throughout the Bible, it tells us the ways that, that God is at work uh, to bring together heaven and earth. That's the, the theme that we've been looking at. The ways that God is at work to make his place and our place the same place. And this is, is much more than a, a minor theme in the Bible. Over the last couple of months, I'm becoming convinced that this is the main point of the whole Bible. That God is at work in our own lives. God is at work making the world into the way that he wants it to be so that we can be together. Ruth, can we get that up for us? The last few weeks we've been talking about the stories in the Old Testament related to the tabernacle and the temple. And the tabernacle and later the temple were the places where God's glory was uniquely present in the world. Where heaven and earth met was in the temple. It's true, as we saw in Solomon's prayer last week, uh, Solomon and the, uh, and the Jewish people, they knew that God is everywhere, that his presence can't be contained in a building, can't be contained in some box, but God chose to be uniquely present in the temple. And God provided a way through the sacrifices on the altar and the other rituals in the temple for people to be made right with God, even though that they were sinful and unclean, that God made these ways that those sacrifices would make them clean and would enable them to be in the presence of God. And that the representative priests in the clothing that Sims described for us a couple weeks ago, that they could be representatives for the people as they went into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies and in the most holy place. This morning, we are going to move ahead in the story a few hundred years to the book of Ezekiel. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel. And we're going to, to, to look at the entire book of Ezekiel today, okay? 48 chapters. I, I hope that you brought your lunch. Ezekiel is one of the prophets of the Old Testament. And while all of the prophets, in one way or another, talk about God's presence with his people, the prophet Ezekiel focuses on this theme in very specific ways and in ways that the other prophets don't. And it is an amazing book. Who has ever read the book of Ezekiel? Okay, there's a few brave souls in here. Ezekiel is an amazing book, and it is very, very strange. Ezekiel is a prophet, and prophets were men who were given messages from God to give to Israel. They were the preachers in Old Testament Israel's time. They were men who were called by God to speak truth to the kings of Israel and also to call all of the people to faithfulness. And Ezekiel was a prophet during the time of Israel's exile in Babylon. 
A few hundred years after Solomon built the temple, that's what we talked about last week, a few hundred years later, the Babylonians swept through and conquered Israel. They surrounded Jerusalem. They set fire to the city. And then they took the strongest and the smartest and the cleverest and the leaders of Israel. And the Babylonians took all of those uh, strong leaders away from Jerusalem to Babylon. And they left everyone else back in Jerusalem to die. And Ezekiel was one of these young men who was taken off to Babylon. And Ezekiel was born into a priestly family. He was born to be a priest. If he would have been born at a different time in Israel's history, he would have grown up learning how to perform the jobs and duties of a priest. But instead, he has been taken with his people into exile, into Babylon. And while he is there in Babylon, God appears to Ezekiel and he gives him some visions and some messages that he's then to call, call to speak to the people who are in exile. And so if you've ever read Ezekiel, you know that he was, uh, saw some, some very strange things. Some of the vi- visions that he have are just mind-bending in, in, in trying to figure out what it is that Ezekiel saw. And more than any other prophet, Ezekiel not only had to speak a message to God's people, but sometimes he had to perform God's messages to people. He, in his own body... Jaden, you should really like Ezekiel, okay? He had to perform God's messages to people. So, for instance, I just want to uh, show you uh, one time in Ezekiel's life where, where God gave Ezekiel a message not only to speak, but to actually perform. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 4. Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 1. Now, son of man, that's God's... Uh, title for Ezekiel. Take a clay tablet and put it in front of you and draw the city of Jerusalem on it and then lay siege to it, erect siege works against it, build a ramp up to it, set up camps against it and put battering rams around it and then take an iron pan and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and turn your face toward it. It will be under siege and you shall besiege it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel." God is saying to Ezekiel, go out into the street and I want you and your body in these iron pans and to, to set up these little models of Jerusalem. And I want you to go out in Jerusalem and I want you to do this. It's like stage theater. It's like street theater. You know, people out on the streets performing some act. This is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to communicate this message Ezekiel. So, so far, so good. I imagine Ezekiel's not too worried about this yet, but it gets really strange. Then lie on your left side and put the sin of the house of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear the sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days, you will bear the sin of the house of Israel. After you finish this, lie down again, this time on your right side, and bear the sin of the house of Judah. I have assigned you 40 days, a day for each year. Turn your face toward the siege of Jerusalem, and with bared arm prophesy against her. I will tie you up with ropes. Okay, so let's go ahead and do this a little bit. 
I will tie you up with ropes so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have finished the days of your siege. And then take wheat and barley. Didn't have any wheat or barley, so we've got... So take wheat and barley and put them in a storage jar that you are to make for yourself. And then also beans and lentils and millet and spilt. I didn't have any of those, so I got some chia seeds here. (laughs) I'm not going to do a lot of these because these are really expensive. (laughs) All right. Okay, way out, you are to eat it, whatever is in your container, you are to eat it during the 30, 390 days that you are going to lay on your side in the streets in Babylon. Okay. Way out 20 shekels of food to eat, measure it out with a sixth of hen of water and drink it at set times. Eat the food as you would a barley cake. Bake it in the sight of the people using human excrement for fuel. I don't have any visual aids for that. (laughs) The Lord said, in this way... The people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I will drive them. And then Ezekiel said, Not so, sovereign Lord. I have never defiled myself. From my youth until now, I have never eaten anything found dead or torn by wild animals. No unclean meat has ever entered my mouth. Very well, God said. I will let you bake your bread over cow manure instead of human excrement. Can only imagine whether Ezekiel was all that relieved about that. He then said to me, Son of man, I will cut off the supply of food in Jerusalem. The people will eat rationed food in anxiety and drink rationed water in despair, for food and water will be scarce. They will be appalled at the sight of each other and will waste away because of their sin. For 390 days, actually 430 days total, Ezekiel had to do this on the streets in Babylon. If you think that the Bible is boring, you are reading it wrong. Ezekiel is called to do this. Man, I'm really bound up here. Ezekiel is called to do all of this as a visible parable of what's happening to the people in the city of Jerusalem. My point here is that Ezekiel is vivid. He's very vivid in the way that he communicates his messages, both through his words and through this street theater. Ezekiel is very plain and honest and direct about the great tragedy that Israel is going through at this time. And the first two-thirds of the book are primarily words about God's judgment on Israel and about all of the reasons that they are experiencing this exile in Babylon. And there's one part of Ezekiel's book in particular that we're going to look at today that's a great tragedy for for Israel. It's a vision that Ezekiel receives about how God's presence leaves the temple. 
Remember, the temple is that place where God's glory is uniquely present. Uniquely present there in the temple. And Ezekiel receives a vision where that presence of God leaves the temple. So we're going to talk about that vision today. But later in the book, about 25 chapters later, after Ezekiel sees the glory of God leave the temple... God gives Ezekiel at least three promises related to his presence with his people. God did leave the temple, but later in the book, God promises that he will be with his people in an even greater and more sure way in the future. And so that's our basic outline for for today. If you have your your bulletin uh, on the back there, we're going to talk about this tragedy in Israel's life. And then I've listed there three promises that God gives to Ezekiel. And as I was finishing my sermon on Friday and and yesterday, I realized that I'm not going to be able to talk about all three of those promises today, but they're going to fit really well into what we're going to talk about next week. And so today we're going to talk about the tragedy of Israel, and then we're also going to talk about this first promise that God is going to come as a good shepherd for Israel. Those are the two things we're going to talk about today. But before we dive into that outline there of the tragedy and the promises, I want to spend a few minutes talking about how to read the prophets in the Old Testament. Often when we think about the prophets of the Old Testament, and if anybody has has been in the church for very long or has studied the scriptures for very long, often when we think about the prophets, we think about how they wrote about the end times or how they wrote about the last days. And no doubt, the prophets speak a lot about those things. But when the prophets talk about the last days or the end times, we tend to think that they're only talking about things in our future. Only about things that we haven't yet experienced yet. And for sure, the prophets have much to say about things that have yet to happen in history. But when the prophets speak about the end times, or the last days, or about the time when the Messiah will come, much of what they are talking about has already happened, at least in part in history, in Jesus when he first arrived on the earth. Let me give you an illustration uh, to help us think about this. This is where Katie and I used to live. Okay, this is Vancouver. It's a beautiful place. I must love you all a lot to have left this place to come here. I really do love you all a lot. And behind the city of Vancouver is the North Shore Mountains. And there's about eight or nine peaks back there. And when you are standing at sea level, looking to these mountains, all of the peaks look like they are right next to one another. You know what I mean? So you're standing on the ground looking up at mountain peaks. It looks like they are all just in a line with one another. But the reality is there's depth, right, between these different peaks. So Mount Cypress was the closest mountain to the city. And then there was Mount Seymour, which was a a mile or two behind Cypress. And then there was Grouse Mountain, which was a couple miles behind them. And then there were the lions, which were way up here, and they were about 20 miles back behind Cyprus. And then there was one called Capilano Peak, which was about 20 more miles beyond, um, beyond the lions. 
I think that this is an illustration, an image of how the prophets looked into the future and they saw the time when the Messiah would come. They saw all of the Messiah's arrivals, all of what the Messiah would do as one event in history. But history has shown that there is depth. There was the first coming when the Messiah did all sorts of things, like made possible the forgiveness of sins. But there's also depth. There is time in between the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming of the Messiah. Are you with me? Okay, let me give you an, another illustration. Turn to Isaiah chapter 61. In Isaiah chapter 61, this is what the prophet Isaiah says about the year of the Lord's favor, about the time when the Messiah would come. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. In Luke chapter 4, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is in the synagogue and he sits down and he opens up a scroll to Isaiah chapter 61. And when he gets to Isaiah chapter 61 in Luke chapter 4, this is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to prisoner, uh, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying today, Today, here in this moment, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I want you to notice in these two passages, Jesus attributes the words of Isaiah to his own ministry in almost every point. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's preached, anointed me to preach good news to the poor, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness of prisoners, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But then Isaiah 61 adds this, in the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus didn't go that far. He stopped. Why did he stop? Because the day of the vengeance of our God isn't going to happen until his second coming. There is depth to Isaiah's vision, to Isaiah's prophecy here in Isaiah chapter 61. Jesus comes and he says that the time for the Messiah has come. I am here. Isaiah 61 is fulfilled today in your hearing, but not all of it. Not yet all of it. There are parts of Isaiah's vision that I am fulfilling now, and that there are other parts of his vision that I am fulfilling later. And we know now, as we stand 2,000 years after Jesus spoke in the synagogue, that that later is going to be at least 2,000 years after 
his first coming. There's depth in this mountain range of Isaiah's vision that Isaiah couldn't see, but that we can. Are you with me? Do you understand what I'm saying? Another example that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks is that many of the prophets, including Ezekiel, speak about a time when God will rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And that temple will be a house of prayer for all nations. Now, it may be that we are still waiting for the complete and the final fulfillment of that prophecy at some point in the future. But what is also clear in the New Testament is that the New Testament writers took this idea of a future temple that Ezekiel and the other prophet, uh, prophets spoke about, and they said, we are already now experiencing that in some way in our experience with Jesus, in our experience of the receiving of the Spirit into our own lives, and in the spirit, uh, experience of our life in the church. Jesus himself calls his own body the temple. Paul tells us that our bodies, those who are believers and who have the Spirit of God, that the glory of God is dwelling not in the temple of Jerusalem, but where? In us. Paul tells us that the church as a whole is a temple, the dwelling place of God. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 that the church is a group of living stones being built into a temple where God lives by his Spirit. Paul and Peter aren't grabbing these visions of the temple out of thin air. They're taking it from the prophets. Already, right now, God is fulfilling his promise to build a temple that is a house for, of prayer for all nations, and he is doing that now in the life of the church, God's spirit-filled people. Jesus and the New Testament writers look back on the promises of the prophets and they see that there is depth. They see that there are many different layers of meaning to the words of the prophets, and they applied their own experience of Jesus and their experience of the Holy Spirit and their experience of their life in the church, and they say that these in some way, at least in part, are being fulfilled today in Jesus and in the life of the church. Think back again to Isaiah chapter 61. When Jesus was here on earth, did he preach good news to the poor? Did he bind up the brokenhearted? Did he release the oppressed? Did he do that 2,000 years ago? Is he doing that right now? Will he do it in the future? Isaiah 61, Luke chapter 4, they come with depth. All of these words that Isaiah are preaching have been fulfilled in part in Jesus, are now being fulfilled in the life of the church, and will be fulfilled someday in the future in ways that we can't yet imagine. Are you with me? Okay. So, let's get back to Ezekiel. Last week, we talked about how at the very end of King David's reign... And in the very early years of Solomon's reign, that that was Israel's golden years. Okay? Those were uh, the best time to be an Israelite was there at the very end of King David's reign, in the very early years of Solomon's reign. It's at that time in their history where the people of Israel possessed most of the promised land. They eventually had this wise king named Solomon who completed the building of this palace and who completed the building of this temple. 
But if you know the history of Israel, things go downhill really quickly. Really quickly. Solomon's son fight for power and they split the kingdom into two, into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. You can read about that split in Kings and Chronicles. Those books tell then about all of the kings that followed David and Solomon. And were they good kings or not? They're mostly bad kings, right? The kings and the prophets are said to be the shepherds of the people. They were called to care for the people. They were to lead them toward the worship of God. They were called to prepare people to come and to come into the temple so that the priests could lead the people and to teach them about the ways and the law of God. They were to protect the people from the nations around them so that the nations around them wouldn't influence them and cause them to turn their backs to God. But the kings, more often than not, were terrible shepherds. They themselves forgot God. They sought power and wealth for themselves. They neglect the worship of God in the temple. They begin to be influenced by the nations around them. Rather than protecting the people from the nations, they allow the nations to influence the people and lead them to worship to idols. And so in Ezekiel chapter 8 through 11, we're not going to read all of that one, but Ezekiel receives a vision. In the first part of that vision, Ezekiel sees the temple in Jerusalem. And in the temple, rather than people coming and praying to the God of Israel, the God who rescued them from Egypt, Ezekiel sees this vision of the temple, and instead, God's people are there in the temple worshiping idols. And the leaders of Israel, the shepherds of Israel, rather than doing the work of leading people to God... Ezekiel sees them, and Ezekiel expresses this in very vivid language. Ezekiel describes how he sees them with their back away from the Holy of Holies and bowing towards the east, worshiping the sun. Israel's shepherds have failed to lead them, the people, to God. And because of that, the people have completely forgotten God, have turned away from God, and are now worshiping idols. And so in chapter 10, Ezekiel sees this this heartbreaking vision. Because God's people have turned their back on him, because they forgot him and pursued idols, Ezekiel watches as the glory of the Lord leaves. It's gone. No longer is the temple the dwelling place of the glory of the Lord on the earth. And so Ezekiel sees this vision, and he has to go back, I can only imagine, with great heartache to the leaders and to tell them what he saw in this vision. Remember, they are already in exile. Their hearts are already broken. They have lost their homes. They've been driven out of the promised land, are now in Babylon. And now Ezekiel comes to them and says, God's presence is no longer back there at home. And this raises all sorts of questions for the people of Israel. It's hard to overstate how central the temple was in Israel's identity of who they were and what it meant to be God's people. And so if God isn't in the temple anymore, who are we? Where is God? Are we still even God's people? Do we even have an identity as a people anymore? Should we go back home? And if we do go back home, is there anything even to go back to that's worthwhile? Is there anything left for us if God's presence has left? 
One of the main reasons that the people in Babylon would have longed to go back to Jerusalem is because at least when they went there, they knew that God's presence would be there. Now, not only are they in exile, homeless in Babylon, now the very most precious thing that they remember about home is now gone too. This is the great tragedy in Israel's life. And the great thing about Ezekiel and all of the prophets is they tell it how it is. One of the most important things for us to live healthy and whole lives when we are going through suffering in one way or another is to live according to the truth. And for the people of Israel who are now exiled in Babylon, far away from home, it's important for them to accept that this tragedy has happened to them. It's only by living in that truth that can they actually move forward in any healthy way. They have lost their homes. They have lost access to the presence of God. And now they need to ask themselves, what does it mean for us to be faithful here in Babylon, knowing that the presence of God has left our home? And so this story of Israel and Babylon weeping for the loss of their home, grieving over the loss of the fact that God has now left his temple. This is what Israel's grief and their laments are all about. And we're going to talk about that next week because later in the Bible, God's glory does return to the temple, but not in a way that anyone would have ever expected. And for a hint, you can read John 1 and John 2. Uh, to look at how that happened. So that is the great tragedy in Israel's life. And here is the first of at least three promises that Ezekiel gives about God's presence with his people after leaving the temple. The next 25 uh, or so chapters from 11 on uh, speak a lot of really hard and really bad news to the people of Israel, to the Jewish people, as well as to the nations around them. But beginning in Ezekiel chapter 34, and I encourage you to turn there, Ezekiel chapter 34, there comes some really, really, really good news. The gospel is all over Ezekiel 34 through 48. And the good news, the gospel of Ezekiel chapter 34 through 48, is that God's presence will be with his people. God's presence is going to be with his people in ways far better than it ever was in the temple. Ezekiel finishes his book even. I had a friend of mine who would read the last page of every book that she read before she read any of the other book, the rest of the book. I can't imagine why you would want to do that, but... If you want to look at the last line in Ezekiel, it's the Lord is there. The Lord is there. The name of the eternal city is the Lord is there. So that's how Ezekiel finishes his book. But here in the middle, in Ezekiel chapter 34, there's a promise that God is going to be present with his people as a good shepherd. Ezekiel begins this chapter in 34, speaking words of judgment on Israel's leaders, on their shepherds, the kings and the priests, those who are bad shepherds and who cause God's peoples to turn away from God and to turn to idols. 
Ezekiel tells these shepherds, you've only cared about yourself. You didn't seek after the hurting. You didn't bind up their wounds. You didn't lead them back to God. And so listen how God promises here in Ezekiel chapter 34, that because Israel's leaders, their shepherds failed, this is what God says about what he will do. Ezekiel 34 verse 11. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on the day of cloud and darkness. I will bring them out of the nations and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Isn't that beautiful? Israel, you have turned and you have gone your own way. You have worshiped idols in my temple, and because of that, I had to drive you out of the land. I drove you into exile, but I will be present with you. I still desire for my place and for your place to be the same place. And so you have had bad shepherds in the past. I am going to be a good shepherd. I will lead you. I will seek after you. I will bind up your wounds. If you are hurting, come to me and I will be a good shepherd to you. Do you remember what Jesus called himself in John chapter 10? I am the good shepherd. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Jesus doesn't say, I am a good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. Remember what Ezekiel talked about in chapter 34. I am that good shepherd. Jesus is not just, again, drawing from a metaphor out of thin air. He is drawing from Ezekiel and Israel's understanding of what the Messiah would be like. And he's saying, this is me. I am here. I am the good shepherd that Ezekiel promised would come. And Jesus tells us that as a good shepherd, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also so that they too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. There is depth in Ezekiel's message about being a good shepherd. Israel made a promise to the people of Israel that God would come and be present with them as a good shepherd. Jesus says that there is more to the story that Israel knew. He is not only going to be a good shepherd for Israel, he is going to be the savior and the good shepherd for the whole world. I am the good shepherd for anyone who is lost and who is hurting. I will bind their wounds if they will come to me. There's many other stories uh, about Jesus making reference to himself as a shepherd, right? There's a story of him coming back in the end of the Gospel of Matthew where he will separate the sheep from the goats. Again, that's a quotation from Ezekiel chapter 34. 
Then there's that wonderful story about the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep in order to seek out that one that was lost. Jesus says, I am that kind of shepherd. And then I want to finish today with the story of Zacchaeus. Turn to Luke chapter 19. You remember the story of Zacchaeus, right? If you, have, if you grew up in the church at all, you heard this story a lot. Uh, if you didn't grow up in church or if you don't know this story, it's a wonderful story about a man named Zacchaeus who was a tax collector in Israel. He was a Jew, but he was a traitor. He was worse than a Roman because he turned his back on his people and went to work for the Romans so that he could collect taxes and cheat people out of their own money. The people of Israel hated tax collectors. They were, they were traitors against their own people. And one day, Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is coming. And Zacchaeus seeks after him. And Zacchaeus, being a wee little man, can't see Jesus because of all of the people. And so he climbs up into the tree so that he can see Jesus coming. And as Jesus is walking down the street, Jesus sees Zacchaeus in the tree. And Zacchaeus, uh, Jesus sees into Zacchaeus's heart. Zacchaeus is a sinner. He is a man who has lied and who has cheated. As a Jew, he has turned his back on his people and he has bowed toward the idol of money. But here he is seeking after Jesus. And Jesus sees him and he says to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come on down from out of that tree. I see your heart today. And today I am going to be with you in your house. Today, my place and your place are going to be the same place. And the people all around begin to grumble they complain that Jesus is hanging out with sinners. And then the story gives us more echoes from the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 33 says this, and I'll read it for you. Ezekiel 33 verses 14 and 15 says this. And if I say to the wicked man, you shall surely die, but he then turns away from his sin and does what is just and right... If he gives back what he took and pledged for a loan, returns what he has stolen, follows the decrees that give life and does no evil, he will surely live, he will not die. The very next chapter in 34 where, Jesus, where Ezekiel is talking about the good shepherd. 34, 16, I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Listen to how the story of Zacchaeus ends. All the people saw and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. It's exactly what Ezekiel said the righteous, the wicked man will do if he turns away from his wickedness. He will restore back what has been given to him. And then 
verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. The good shepherd in the story of Zacchaeus comes to a particular man named Zacchaeus on a particular road in Jerusalem because Jesus wanted his place and Zacchaeus' place to be the same place. And even though Zacchaeus had turned his back on God, had become a traitor to his people, even though Zacchaeus worshipped the idol of money and stole and cheated from people, Jesus the good shepherd was still seeking after him. Friends, this is the gospel for you and for me. Told in the book of Ezekiel and told in the story of Zacchaeus, you have wandered far from God. You have turned your back on him. Maybe you have been a follower of Jesus for a very long time, but if Ezekiel would get a glimpse, would get a vision into your own heart, he would see idols there. In your life, you have turned your back to God and have followed and desired other things more than him. But Jesus is here, walking down the road of Broadway today. And he's here right now. And he says to you, come to me. I want to be with you. I want my place and your place to be the same place. If you will turn back to me today, I will make my home with you. The good shepherd is seeking after you today. He is seeking and looking for those who are lost and who are broken. He is here to bind up your wounds like a good shepherd, to heal your broken heart. He is the good shepherd that, has prom- that was promised to us thousands and thousands of years ago, and he is here today inviting you to come home to him. Amen? Amen. God in heaven, we thank you for this good word from your prophet Ezekiel. We thank you for the faithfulness of your New Testament writers that you inspired to draw from Ezekiel and from the other prophets and to point us that all of them, from Moses to the prophets, were speaking about you, Jesus. speaking about the ways that we can experience your saving work through the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the whole world. We thank you that he came to be present with us as a good shepherd. Lord, we confess and admit that if Ezekiel got a vision into our hearts, he would see many idols set up there. So God, I pray that you would come and do your work in us. That you would cause us like Zacchaeus to turn around and to walk toward you. Like Zacchaeus to seek you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.